production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. And welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Thrive, sorry. It's Tuesday, December 6th, and I'm Tanya Maness, President and CEO of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, and the moderator for today's panel conversation in partnership with the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Today we are discussing what success in economic growth means for small to mid-sized cities. Lately, the definition of success has been dominated by a city's ability to attract more jobs, bring in new businesses, and grow population. But using only this framework, Midwestern cities can be perceived as failing, even if they may be thriving in other overlooked or non-traditional indicators. This perception incentivizes those in economic development to chase the next big thing, rather than focus on strategies that benefit the people already working and living in the region. We begin to see billboards in other states that have started to flank highways, trying to attract new big businesses, or moments when civic leaders offer tax breaks and extravagant packages to draw in large corporations. So how can we build on our existing assets to meet the needs of local residents? And how can we flip the script on what successful economic growth looks like in Midwestern cities? Here to discuss this today with us is Bradford Davey, Chief Strategy Officer at the City of Cleveland. In his role, Davey works across Mayor Bibb's cabinet to help carry out his sweeping agenda, including a reimagining of the lakefront and oversees the Mayor's Office of Urban Analytics and Innovation. Next to Bradford is Jesse Grogan, Associate Director of Reduced Poverty and Spatial Inequality at the Lincoln Land Institute of Land Policy. In this capacity, she manages the Legacy Cities Initiative, a program designed to equip smaller and mid-sized legacy cities with the tools and capacity they need to revitalize equitably and sustainably. And then to her left is James Hardy, Senior Program Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. James brings extensive experience in citywide economic and community development and works with small and mid-sized cities across the country and promoting economic development as a key driver of health outcomes. If you have a question for our panelists, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club and the City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of our program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Bradford, Jesse, and James. All right. Okay, so as I stated in those opening remarks, our desire today is to focus on new paradigms of economic development in which we start to move away from the age-old mode of business attraction and economic incentives 
begin to focus more on investing in people, investing in our assets, and creating a region that feels right for our residents, the businesses that are here today, knowing that if we do that, we will see the kind of economic benefits that we strive for in our city. So James, when we were doing our prep, you talked about a framework that you utilize to think about a community's capacity from an economic development perspective. And it would be great if you started us off by grounding us a little bit in that framework. Happy to. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, um, I get asked a lot, why is Robert Wood Johnson involved in economic development? Don't you guys fund health? Well, we do. And one of the things that we, uh, we have seen as the nation's leading health funder is that the health and well-being outcomes in America's small and mid-sized cities, which we define as 50,000 to 500,000 in population, have been falling precipitously for some time now. And when we look at the framework of social determinants of health, the economic opportunity area is critical to a person and a family's health and well-being outcomes. And so naturally, we think we should be involved in looking at these economic development paradigms and why are they generating such, for lack of a better term, crappy outcomes. And so we started doing a lot of research, and we have been over the last three years. And, and to be very simple about it, there are three factors that we believe uh, small and mid-sized cities across the country, particularly in the Midwest, really need to focus on. One is commitment, which we interpret as leadership. The importance of leadership in the civic space. Yes, both elected and formal, but also community-based and informal. And the interplay between the two is critical to success if we're gonna move into a new and different paradigm for development. The second is capacity. Obviously, that's like, duh. But specifically, community-based capacity and city government and county government's capacity, again, to work together uh, for the common good. So whether that's CDCs, uh, community-based power building organizations, a city planning department, all of these things sort of connecting together around a vision is critical. And then the final piece is capital, which again is kind of a dumb moment, but I think it's important to suss out the, the complexities there. Certainly small and mid-sized cities balance sheets are anemic when you compare them to their larger brothers and sisters. But the other thing we're finding is that small and mid-sized cities have an incredibly difficult time aggregating capital and building pipelines of projects that build on one after another after another. So you start to see these cycles where you do one catalytic project every 10 years, but you never seem to get the momentum to do the real transformative change. So that commitment, capacity, capital piece we're really focusing on that. So Bradford, I'd love you to comment on certainly the commitment and capacity piece sure. on how you feel like things are different under a new BIB administration. Sure, um, and first I just wanted to say how great it is to be with so many friends, neighbors, uh, and really deep economic thinkers. Um, uh, on this point around commitment, uh, coming out of the transition, uh, a small group of uh, the mayor's cabinet met to discuss prioritization. And there's no uh, unending number of vexing and intractable challenges that the city of Cleveland faces. We know that. Uh, but thinking about how we chart a course against those uh, key and uh, highest level priorities 
coming out of that conversation, it was clear. Nothing could be more explicit um, that the, the really gravestone priority, as we call it, the, the legacy building priority for Mayor Bibb and our team, uh, is a development of a Marshall Plan for the east side. Uh, when we say Marshall Plan, we're really noting uh, and looking back to uh, the post-World War II era where what the United States said was, uh, in order for us to be successful, uh, we would have to disproportionately invest um, in the places that were most affected and most devastated. Um, and I think it's really important for us to be clear uh, that in order for the city of Cleveland to, to really grow, shift from this paradigm of chasing the next big thing, uh, in order to be ready for the next big thing, the whole city needs to be ready. Um, and so uh, it's, it's just really important for us to, to chart that course and, and deliver that North Star. And of course, we can't do it without uh, uh, our partners um, and building the capacity. That's why we're working really hard to think about uh, how to retrain our muscle memory around what collaboration looks like with external stakeholders. Uh, you've seen us do that uh, with the partnership for um, resilient communities uh, through PERC, Equitable and Resilient Communities with PERC. Uh, we have a, a deep uh, and growing commitment uh, to collaborate with the Harvard Bloomberg team um, for the Mayor's Leadership Initiative, where we're really thinking about uh, building this muscle memory with national leaders around how we can collaborate better together, uh, because it's critical for us. So I'm going to hit the capital piece before I go on to the next question, because uh, I think you all know that is my obsession with the fact that, and I'm really excited about more of these national partners that you're working with. Um, where have you seen uh, in our cities the capital piece, uh, I, I won't say solved, right, but see it, you know, some communities really make some headway from a capital perspective? Either one of you, yeah. Oh, well, I think that is definitely a journey that we're embarking on. There, there aren't any uh, silver bullets yet, probably will never be any silver bullets, but um, my colleagues at the Center for Community Investment, which is an initiative of the Lincoln Institute, are working very hard to help communities come together. And this kind of brings both the capacity and the capital piece together. Think about who needs to be in the room in order to establish a pipeline of projects and the funding sources that you need stacked one on top of another in a lot of cases in order to get the projects done. So I think in some cases, answering the capacity question also helps answer the capital question when you bring together the, the people with the money from the different sectors uh, to work towards a shared goal. I would agree. I think the, the, two, the two examples I've come to mind, one is Bloomington, Indiana. So you had a mayor coming in, sort of identifying this challenge, right, of, okay, yes, we have anemic balance sheets, but we have a larger problem, which is um, we have people who want to invest, but we got to put together the pipeline. So together with some of his uh, friends from his former finance life, community development finance life, they created what is now CDFI America, CDFI Friendly America. And that was the first site. And so that's, that's another, in addition to CCI, a really innovative model. The other is uh, Invest Appalachia. So this can actually be a regional effort as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be just a city. And what they've been able to do to aggregate capital and work with communities across an entire region to identify their priority projects for investment is just incredible. Invest Appalachia is such a cool example. You guys should all look them up. They're amazing. 
Right. So I think we'll keep coming back to this <laughs> idea. But Jesse, uh, again, as we were prepping for this, you talked about your research starting to focus on the focus on the negative externalities of growth. And of course, Bradford and I immediately had kind of a visceral reaction because we <laughs> feel like growth is what this community needs. Right? We need investment. But I think it was you know you you've seen some really important things, and you're encountering some some issues that I think we need to hear about, and sort of that triple bottom line, and how we're mindful of growth benefiting the communities that we're all in. Well, speaking of Appalachia, I think Appalachia and the Rust Belt are great examples of places where historically growth has been considered at all costs without necessarily taking into consideration the social and environmental costs of doing business. And that worked pretty well for a while uh, until companies moved to China and left behind a lot of environmental devastation and a workforce that didn't really have much of a plan B or an economy that didn't really have much of a plan B, really. So, you know, in my work with James and others, I'm starting to think through how can we fundamentally rethink what an economy looks like? So it's not just about prosperity, but it's also about thinking in the long term for human well-being, for environmental sustainability, all of those pieces that I think we're going to need if we're going to have a prosperous economy in the long run. So, so part of what we're starting to do is look around the country and the world and find models of places that are starting to connect these dots. And mostly they're pretty small. And you guys have one in your backyard that I love, the Evergreen Cooperatives, where you're using a local asset, the, the purchasing power of your anchors, to really feed a you know, business that also, that both, excuse me, um, looks at green industry and building prosperity through you know, worker-owned co-ops and uh, profit sharing. So these are the kind of small, you know, very local, very micro enterprises that we're thinking about and starting to think about, okay, how do we put those pieces together and bring those to scale? And that's where I think we come back again to James's three C's of, you know, we're going to need everyone working together to try and take these very t small dots and connect them to something that's really transformative. I think you guys are in a really good moment to be having these conversations and asking these questions because you know, there's a scenario that's not all that unlikely where my, I live in Boston and uh, you know, my city is underwater. And there are cities around the country that are experiencing extreme weather and you know, sea level rise that make them not particularly appealing places to live. But you know what will be an appealing place to live? Cleveland and many of your Great Lakes uh, neighbors. So I think there, there is entirely likely that you'll see some growth pressure in a way that you haven't necessarily in the past. And now is the time to start thinking about avoiding making the mistakes that were made the first time around and connecting the dots to something that really is a different way of thinking about economic development. Yeah, yeah, I just please. it's such an important point about making sure that we are doing that upfront um, before these things happen. It, in order for cities to effectively push private sector businesses uh, to drive towards the triple bottom line that we're looking for, I think first we need to really identify with clarity uh, what positive externalities we're trying to drive, um, and then to make sure we communicate them. And I think we can do it in a couple of ways. One is we have to get better at defining what the outcomes we want to see are, and, and push ourselves to be, to be metrics driven. I think, two, uh, we have to ensure that those positive externalities are, are one, strategic, um, and systemic rather than transactional. So when we are evaluating a project, 
um, you know, is our goal to count the number of MBEs that are participating, or are we really interested in looking at, over the course of a long period of time, how many MBEs go from a, a sub to a prime in that relationship? Uh, if we are thinking about an end user on a site, are we really concerned with the number of jobs created, or are we concerned um, with those jobs creating family-sustaining wages? And so being clear um, that we're trying to drive really evergreen outcomes. Um, not things that sort of exist for one individual project. And then finally, like we have to communicate better. The what is easy to define, we understand those. Sometimes we, we aren't good at communicating uh, the how and the why, because the why matters and that narrative matters, and people really want to understand how we're evaluating projects. Um, because if, if we just say, it's a good idea, because we said so, uh, there's a lot of reason for people not to trust that statement. And so we just have to be better at communicating, too. So we, you touched on the Evergreen crop, and that was a massive investment on this broader community. But what, and you find these things, you go, it's very difficult to scale, right? It was very difficult to really train enough people to have enough of a supplier base for that kind of work. And so, Bradford, I liked how you were talking about this in terms of seeing businesses, seeing residents move along a continuum, right, where they're seeing change in their lives as they move forward. And so kind of we were in a, a meeting, many of us, yesterday about um, how to prepare workers for climate resiliency, how to prepare workers to be doing more work in the urban forestry. Um, it's people, ultimately, right, that we need to prepare for this next step. So any of you can talk about this that you'd like. Sort of what are some of these steps that you're seeing in other parts of the country where we're investing in people? Uh, to really help improve neighborhoods, improve the economy, prepare the region for the next step? Hmm. Well, this is not going to be new to any of you necessarily, but I, I do think it's important to underscore the role of community colleges and vocational education and really connecting that pipeline between high school and whatever step comes next, job training, apprenticeship, community college, you know, we need to really do a better job, all of us, um, in thinking about how we can serve the needs that are now. I know in Massachusetts, we're pretty good at this, but we're still sort of chasing that vision of let's train everyone in biotech and then we'll just be a biotech state. And, you know, it, that, that works to some extent, but it's a little bit of wishful thinking. And I think some, some real hard look at what are your assets and what can you grow, and then making sure that you have all of the pieces of that pipeline talking to each other and in alignment is really one thing that I've seen make a huge difference. I mean, that's, you gotta walk before you can run. It's pretty basic stuff, but nobody, you know, very few people do it as well as they should. I would ditto that. I would also say too, this, this I'm not saying it to be a downer, but I don't think anybody's really figured it out. And I think that, I look at that as an opportunity to be innovative, to be a laboratory, and to work together across cities. So that's sort of our job is to aggregate that and get the word out. But I will say that um, it's not new to say that we need to move beyond jobs, investment, and to a certain extent population growth as the key metrics of economic success. And yet we still do it. And I think part of why we do it is because, to Bradford's point, there isn't a clear-cut industry-accepted alternative that provides that dashboard or those set of metrics where you can say, okay, if we focus on some of these things, yes, there'll be some local um, inputs we might want to add, but these things we need to add to the, to the equation. 
So we got to work on that, uh, I think, to be able to do that. And one of those equations that I think I would agree with Jesse on is investing in the people you have. So whatever that metric looks like, I think we still need to figure that out or metrics. But I think we, we know enough now to say that um, talent attraction ain't going to get it done. <laughs> Work on building the talent you have. Yeah. Go ahead. I would just, we'd be remiss. Yeah. I see some of my colleagues in the back um, at the Fund for Economic Future. And there's a lot of work happening here on sector partnerships, right? And so um, while it's incumbent on you know, municipal governments to think about this, um, you know, it's just also important to recognize how we're bringing the private sector together to say you know, what is really needed so that we're not training workforce uh, and then training workforce again and then training workforce again uh, because if we are going to be human-centric we have to recognize that people come to work as human beings they're tired they have other things to worry about and if every every year we're telling them that there is a new thing that they need to go chase um, that's on us um, and so the sector partnership work that's taking root here I think is important to acknowledge and lift up so I'm going to take us back to land use because that was really what this was supposed to be about and I let us go on a, a bit of a tangent there that I think was really important. But Bradford, I was really excited to see this study come out uh, in the last couple of weeks, very aptly named Putting Assets to Work, that really looks at how should we should be thinking about the 15 to 20,000 uh, publicly owned parcels in our community and just wondering how you see that being a, a real asset for Cleveland's growth. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's be real with each other. The, the city of Cleveland has a sites problem. This isn't news to anyone. We have a, we have a sites problem. Um, and it metastasizes itself in a number of ways. Uh, 15 to 20,000 parcels in our municipal land bank. Uh, an aging housing stock, most of which that was built before 78, um, which means, you know, they're, they're full of lead. Um, you know, we have um, a, a real problem identifying aggregated and really developable sites in the city of Cleveland, which leads really to us being passed up for a number of uh, attraction opportunities. Um, and then, of course, the number of sheer municipally owned pieces of real estate that we have, um, I think 12 Square, uh, 12 square miles of, of land, uh, 250 uh, uh, Cleveland Brown stadiums um, that we need to figure out how to put to productive use. And so, you know, when we think about this putting assets to work um, endeavor in which we're, we're advancing with Sorensen Impact, um, what, we're, what we're really saying is the paradigm shift needs to move away from the idea that we actually don't already have what it takes to be successful. We do have what it takes to be successful. It's right here. We have to think um, very clearly um, and really courageously about uh, how we think about deploying the capital and where we deploy it um, to activate those sites and really put them back to productive use. Uh, I think it's easy for us to think that the only way for us to, to bring new dollars inside City Hall um, is to find it elsewhere. But the, the truth is um, we have so many things that are not up to their highest use. And if we can stay um, committed and focused and really be courageous about saying no um, to, to certain sites uh, and, and really say yes to the ones that drive those evergreen outcomes, uh, I think we can be really successful here. I'm going to start to tee up our last question. So as I'm doing that, all of you start thinking about yours. Uh, James, we, we talked about this Greater Ohio Policy Center uh, released a study in the last few weeks called Columbus Plus Ohio, A Tale of Two States. 
And it really does a great job of speaking to the different interventions we need to see in our smaller Midwestern cities and that what has been highly successful in Columbus and we're, we're that's a good thing, is not going to work in the rest of the state. And we need to make sure our state house and others really understand that. Um, and so, you know, if you'll talk through a few of those recommendations that you think are most relevant to this conversation and let the others comment before we start again teeing up questions. Yeah, for sure. So I think I'm so glad that um, the Policy Center had a uh, Columbus plus Ohio because it's not Columbus versus, yeah. right? We, we, there's so much we can learn and we should be thrilled about what's happening in Columbus, but it didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen by accident. And I, so I think some of the things that I, I really appreciated from the report were, um, first of all, the importance of state policy. One of the things we're seeing come up more and more in our, in our scans and our work across the country is that the ways in which their state um, does and does not support them across a wide range of things really dictates their outcomes. And one of the things, for example, is the, is the fiscal partnerships. There's obviously been a long history in Ohio around local government funds and all kinds of different things. These matter at the end of the day as to whether uh, small and mid-sized cities in Ohio or elsewhere can be successful. The other thing that I loved is it's a reminder of how many people live in these cities. So nationwide, 25% of Americans live in a small and mid-sized city. In Ohio, it's over 60%. This is our workforce, this is the state. And the good news is, is that, to Bradford's point, we're not coming to the table empty-handed. There are assets, there are great anchor institutions, educational, health, and otherwise, uh, but they're sort of untapped assets, right? So I think uh, those are the things, would be the things that I would lift up mostly, is we could get into the nuts and bolts around zoning code, and I know Jesse would love to do that. I would love to do that, but, but I think the big takeaways are um, what Columbus and what state houses do across the country really does have an outsized impact as to the trajectory of small and mid-sized places, and to a certain extent, so does the federal. So, oh, go ahead, please. Oh, I, I just wanna, echo what James said about the role of state policy. I think this has historically been very overlooked. Um, I started my career in a state smart growth advocacy organization back when many states had state smart growth advocacy organizations, and now Greater Ohio is one of the few left standing. Um, they're very hard to fundraise for, uh, and it's very hard to get the level of attention that they need, but state policy is a crucial piece of the puzzle. Uh, and we put out a report um, in February of this year about the role of state policy in urban revitalization. And it looks you know, in great detail at you know, both the fiscal side and housing, economic development, sort of the range of ways in which state policy is crucial to city success. So I would encourage you guys to go look at that report because I think there is a lot there and that's a growing issue that I'm seeing. And and as we're wrapping up, Bradford, two of the things they talk about that in though in that is you know investing in place, which was again we all know okay of course that's what people should be doing, but it is not always well understood that investing in place is such a big part of economic development. One piece is about really looking at um, at zoning and making zoning into an environment that. Um, allows for more predictable growth in the city. And I know that's something that you and Director Hong, who's here with us today, is really trying to do for the city. So any last words on sort of encouraging development in the city, investing in the city? Uh, well, you should do it. 
<laughs> we should do it. I, I certainly don't want to get ahead of my planning director uh, yes. on this one, but I think uh, you know what we've what we've seen from a policy perspective is you know we're committed to the 15-minute city. Uh, we are committed to the overlays of TOD policy that will allow us um, to grow in the kind of ways that benefit our residents, um, not in those one-off transactional ways, but really grows our city in a way uh, that helps our sustainability efforts, that helps our connectivity efforts, and frankly, uh, is the kind of city that people want to be in. And so we are just really excited about uh, all of the work ahead. And again, invest in Cleveland. Yeah. All right, and as we're going now to questions, I will say the last thing in that report, just coming back around to, to uh, capital, was the importance of community development finance institutions. And I think that is really an area in which uh, we can grow. And of course, I say that as an organization that has a community development finance institution, but really a great vehicle for many of our banking partners to help invest in our cities. Um, so uh, we're about to begin the audience Q&A for our live stream audience. Uh, again, I'm Tanya Maness, President and CEO of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress and moderator for today's conversation. We're joined by Bradford Davey, Chief Strategy Officer at the City of Cleveland, Jesse Grogan, Associate Director of Reduced Poverty and Spatial Inequality at the Lincoln Land Institute of Land Policy. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> and James Hardy, Senior Program Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our panelists, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text your question to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330 541-5794, and the City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Hi, panelists. Uh, thank you for, for being here and for doing this. Uh, my question is uh, on hospitality. Um, I come from the hospitality world. I'm working on hospitality at the fund. Uh, when I see the other cities that we aspire to be, the Nashvilles, the Austins, the San Franciscos, and the Seattles, what I see is the success there has had an impact on real estate prices that has knocked out the culture that made those cities attractive in the first place. So uh, sort of part question, part, uh, part plea. Uh, the question is, as folks who, f who think about economic growth, do you take culture and hospitality into into consideration when you're thinking about these economic growth strategies and can we act now to solve the problems that these cities are experiencing they've all had to create cultural land trusts to try and preserve spaces and the real estate's very expensive now to do that are there things we can do now uh, to anticipate success and plan for it and and to preserve these assets thanks well, great question. Um, I, I think something that we talk a lot about in our work is building on the assets of your place. And in many places, a robust cultural and artistic sector is a real asset on which to build. So yes, absolutely. I think a place like this that has artist, artists and musicians and cultural attractions, that's a great list. That's a great you know, thing to put at the top of your list of assets. As far as preserving that character as you grow, I think, you know, as the, as the old adage goes, you know, 
the best time to build housing was 40 years ago, the second best time is now. Um, and I think it's never too early to start planning to avoid some of the, the negative consequences of growth. So thinking about preserving affordable housing and even building more while you still have a ton of land in your inventory is really something that I encourage. And I think we've all learned a lesson from San Francisco and kind of much of California, which is unaffordable. So, so I would encourage you to, yes, build on your cultural institutions, but also think very strategically about making sure that you're acting to keep artists from getting priced out before prices go up. I'll just, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I see my colleague, Ricardo Leon, in the room, who I, I had the pleasure of working on uh, the development of a community investment fund with. Uh, we need to be thinking creatively about the solutions that grow wealth for people in places. Um, and so, you know, the degree to which there is an appetite for us to really think about um, making sure that this land is, is publicly owned. And when I say that, I mean by residents who have lived there and who have contributed to that neighborhood and put sweat equity, which has value, in into neighborhoods, we should be doing it. Uh, to the second part of your question, um, certainly I think our commitment to um, public assets, to arts and to culture has been illustrated, particularly with our commitment to the lakefront. I see so many of our partners here that are working on lakefront development. Um, it would be easy to say that putting a bunch of money into this project um, is frivolous because there's not the same economic return on investment that you're looking for. Um, but we hear that time and time again, uh, the water matters. Um, it matters to people. Touching it is part of um, you know, our ethos uh, and our fabric. And so the, the development of these places where people can simply enjoy is a, is a positive externality um, into itself. Yes, I just wanted to know, uh, can a city's foreign-born population be an important asset in its growth? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think in all seriousness, with, without question, and I mean, speaking only from, from our, our vantage point, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a small and mid-sized city that isn't thinking about how to maximize uh, immigration as well as um, how to support their their new American populations the challenges right federal policy so I think there's a disconnect there we get back to this sort of what the state and the feds do matters um, the trajectory of, of how much uh, refugee and new American populations will help to change the trajectory of small and mid-sized cities is wrapped up in policies beyond their control right now but they are certainly a group that punches above their weight as far as a lot of economic indicators that we look at. Small business starts, you know, a lot of this stuff. I think in immigrants are a great economic engine. Uh, would you comment on uh, strategies um, that keep money circulating within the local economy rather than going out of the local area. I've read a little bit of the democracy collaborative models, but I hadn't heard that mentioned. If you could talk about that. Thank you. Yeah, um, hugely important question. And I think going back to the capital portion of this, um, one of the things, so I've spent the last year with an impact investing colleague and I scanning the nation for a CDFI partner or a set of partners that could help us solve for this 
capital conundrum in small mid-sized cities. And I'm here to tell you they don't exist. And so that's a really important finding uh, because what we have found is that in place, there are CDFIs that are targeted right at like small business or housing or, or you know, any number of particular economic focus. And then you have large national CDFIs like LISC and others that are, that are a lot more broad in there. And there's this missing middle. And we're finding that that missing middle is really important in this question of aggregating capital in a place or across a region to accelerate the, the investment in place. And so to your question, I think we would like to see uh, and are hopeful that over the course of the coming years, we will see more CDFI institutions or CDFI-like institutions popping up in places and regions that do exactly that. They aggregate capital that's already there. Sometimes they pull in from other external partners, but mostly it's already there. Organize it and help to put it and reinvest it back into the community. That's not as grassroots as the Democracy Collaborative does, but it made me think of that, uh, that capital piece when you asked that question. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, models of local self-help, I think, are very informative here. And thinking about community ownership in a deeper way than just worker co-ops are certainly great models. But again, we come back to the Evergreen Cooperative. They're very hard to scale. And this is where I think James is absolutely right. We have these amazing examples at the very local scale and then kind of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anybody from Levin, you want to come up with a solution for us. Uh, we're actively looking yes. for, for good models in that space to help these great small scale things grow. We talked earlier about investing in people. And so I'll, I'll give you a, a real example, a live one from this year. Um, early in, in the year, we were considering how to best attract um, a, a, a conference that would invest in um, black tech, future land, uh, Afrotech is, is the one that most people traditionally think of. Um, when those outside resources weren't interested, when they said, you know, Cleveland isn't right for this just yet, uh, it would have been easy for us to pack our bags and say, you know what, it doesn't exist, we're not ready. Um, but instead we looked at a group um, of young leaders who were here working uh, and who just frankly didn't get their flowers yet. Uh, and we invested in that. And so I think you know, when, when we can start to say to ourselves, um, we have what it takes, um, if we have the ambition to commit to the folks that have been doing the work here on the ground uh, and really give them creative license to fail safe, uh, I think it's one of the best things that we can do to make sure that money stays local because people don't forget who invested them early. Hello, uh, Joyce Swang representing the City Planning Commission. You opened the door, so I'm gonna ask you to push it open more. Can you elaborate more on your uh, thoughts on zoning as a strategy and as a tool to bring us to that outcome, the, the success that we want to see here? Do you wanna start or shall I? Would, I would just say whatever she would say. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, all right, yeah. the outsiders will take this question. <laughs> yes, we wanna hear from you on this one. Right. Um, I think, Zoning is an often overlooked tool. Another one I would say, I, I have to say this as part of the Lincoln Institute, is the property tax um, for laying the groundwork for preparing for the vision you want to see and then helping to actually fund that down the line. I think it's hard, long work, 
My tiny city in Massachusetts just spent 10 years completely revamping our zoning code. Um, but it's necessary work because we've gone from a situation where I think 95% of our houses were existing non-compliant. And now, you know, there's a very clear sense of who can build what by right. The process, hopefully, we're still learning, um, should move more quickly and be more predictable for developers to build. I, I cannot underemphasize how important it is to make sure that you're sending clear signs with your zoning and development process what you want to happen where. You know, development for too often, particularly in resource scarce environments, tends to be reactive. We think about people coming to city government with proposals and then responding to those rather than doing the long, complicated work of building a vision together and then aligning our zoning, aligning our building processes, all of these things to make that vision happen. So I think that is a tremendous piece of this puzzle and one that frankly is relatively light on resources. You know, it doesn't cost a ton to reform your zoning. It's just the time and the political will to make it happen. Ditto. <laughs> no, I, I, I would, I would say response. one of the other hats I wear at the foundation is, is housing policy and um, I personally believe that zoning reform is one of the greatest challenges facing this country today and it's one of the least understood. Um, I had an opportunity, I'll just add this, that I had an opportunity to dialogue with some on the White House Policy Council um, as the president was coming out with some of their supply side uh, focuses on the housing shortage. And I asked the question, what's one politically inexpedient thing that you know, philanthropy can help carry the water on? Uh, zoning. Mm -hmm. To a person, everybody said, we have very little control over it, and yet it controls everything. It rules our lives uh, when it comes to solving the housing crisis. So I, I, I'd be hard pressed to find a more noble cause. Yeah. Before we go on to the next question, I just want to poke what you just said, because the other thing you mentioned that you felt was really helpful is property tax reform. So we've just gone through a tax abatement uh, process, just kind of scratched the surface. Uh, many of us in this room are working on property tax relief to help longtime homeowners and others not get priced out of their homes. Can you just touch very briefly on what you were saying about property tax, and then we'll go on to the next question. Certainly. I will try not to put any of you to sleep. <laughs> um, but I think having a consistent and predictable property tax in place with regular reassessments is built-in value capture. Thinking about ways to bring back to the municipal coffers the increase in value that comes, hopefully, from investment in places like the waterfront, that happens naturally if you have a good property tax system that is updated regularly and keeps track of these increases in value. The other piece of that is this relief for homeowners and making sure that you know, low-income homeowners don't suffer as a result of their increased value. So you certainly can't do, can't do your property tax without having good relief systems in place. But I think having a consistent and predictable and regularly updated property tax system is essential to making your systems work right. And now we can move back to the Great. questions. Thank you. Go ahead, please. Well, and what kind of it comes up to me as a recurring theme is that in government agencies, we need some mindset shifts. And I think, you know, just the case that it took 10 years to revise the zoning code, it's too long. I mean, most, you know, I, I get it. Um, I lived in Seattle when the, um, they were going through the whole Alaska Way viaduct, um, Reno, and it took 20 years to get to that point, and that structure was unsound. And, you know, to me, it's like, well, how do we get those who are kind of in government agencies 
actually kind of coming alongside that a little faster. And I know there's some great initiatives happening at the city of Cleveland, but I'd love some other examples of places where they have been able to kind of shift that a little bit and um, not necessarily work at the pace of business, but you know, just step it up a little bit and not have those examples where it takes so long to, to come to some good change. I think this is a really important question, uh, and not just because I used to work at a city. But I think we have Bradford here. I know Mayor Brown is here from Youngstown. We've got other city officials. I can't think of a harder job today than trying to run a U.S. city. And, um, and I think so that's the first step is like we just got to acknowledge that. Uh, the second is, is that I, I have found when I left City Hall and went to work at a national philanthropy that apart from like Bloomberg, Harvard, and a few key folks, there isn't a ton of support and technical assistance and professional development for people working in government on how to do some of these things and accelerate the pace of change. That's something we're very interested in funding. Well, I want to say something that I think is going to make Bradford mad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is I want to push back on that a little bit because I think often what is lost when thinking about moving at the pace of business are equity and having the really tough conversations to make sure that the economic development that happens really serves the people who need it the most and that they're involved in the conversation. And I think that is not a fast process. That involves building new relationships and repairing past harm. And there is a really lot of groundwork that needs to be done in order for government work to be truly equitable. And that just takes time. So I I don't have a great answer for you, but I, I think it is a more complicated question than just how can we help government move faster. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think it's I think it's both and. Um, certainly, we can't underestimate the need for urgency. If uh, you are a homeowner whose house is underwater right now, um, we can have a lot of engaging conversations about what it is you need to make sure that you're heard. But at the end of the day, you want your problem solved. And so, balancing this idea of community engagement and what we know to be right is critical. Uh, to James, your point around um, the just sort of scope and difficulty of, of managing a municipality, it's it's also the conviction to say no. If you ask Mayor Bibb right now, you know uh, one of the lessons that he's learned in the last 12 months, um, it's it's have the courage to say no with conviction. Um, There's some things we can't say no to, right? Um, keeping streets safe can't say no to it. Uh, picking up the garbage can't say no to it. Snow removal can't say no to it. Can people get really upset? <laughs> um, uh, but, but there are some things uh, that we, we can prioritize. And the conviction to say no to those things, to build urgency, um, is critical. And there are so many City Hall employees in the room right now. Uh, and I will just say to all of you, uh, there has never been a group of people more committed to change and, and hardworking that I've seen. And so know um, that wh- while some things do take time, uh, it, is, it is not for a lack of trying. And I'm, it really, I'm honored to, to work with you all. As we go to the next question, I think it's that real understanding of development and change happens at the speed of trust. And unlike the private sector, if you try to do make change, large-scale change in a community without that trust, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's just not going to work. For those of us who drive through the east side and see block after block of disinvestment, 
Um, Bradford, I'd like to ask you if you could um, elaborate a bit on what the uh, City Hall's strategy is for revitalizing those blocks. Yeah, so you've seen, you've seen some of this come to ground with uh, our American Rescue Plan investments. Um, everything um, from uh, down payment assistance um, to uh, support for individuals looking to, to rehab their homes. Uh, we're currently going through a 10-year housing study, which is going to be critical for us to really understand uh, what's happening and where a real live snapshot that we can transact against, right? The data isn't great at City Hall, right? We have a lot of data, but it's not always uh, in a place that we can transact against. And so the development and the cleanliness of that data so we can make informed decisions uh, is, really, is really critical. Um, you know, this putting assets to work plan uh, that we, uh, that um, Tanya alluded to, really maps all the municipally owned assets. And so if we work with county, uh, county planning uh, and our partners um, uh, over at Team NEO and really start to think about what sites are ready and ripe for development, we can start to really pinpoint where we are going to have to make some decisions, right? We're going to, I've talked a lot about the courage to say no and conviction. Uh, we have to be able to, to disproportionately spend um, in order to, to equitably spend um, in, in the east side. And I think we're in the beginning stages of mapping out what that plan looks like. Uh, and I, I really look forward to, to releasing something more detailed soon. Uh, Brad, this is going to be directed to you again. Uh, sorry for picking on you. But uh, as you uh, talked about um, investing in people and creating jobs, but not only jobs, jobs that are family sustaining, when you walk out of the parking uh, garage and you see the construction going on, which is a sign of economic development, uh, you see a work crew that is probably 90% white. Uh, in construction. What is it that we are not doing in a region and a city that has significant minority populations that, con that this continues to happen, where you don't see crews that are reflective of the community that, that they're working in? Yeah, well, that's maybe the most prominent example where we can viscerally see it. it that's unfortunately not the only place that those, those exist, right? Uh, we saw it during COVID where communities of color were disproportionately affected um, because of the sectors um, that, uh, that they work in. So um, how we think about workforce training, where we deploy that workforce training, and then also just being laser focused um, specifically around the kind of metrics that we're trying to drive. I mentioned earlier um, thinking less about the transactional. We could, we could think about community benefit agreements um, as a, a, a one-off transaction and we could say you know how many MBEs are being served here but the question that you're really asking right is how are we growing these MBEs to perform on bigger jobs so crews are more expansive so that they're doing more work um, and you know that is a long-range plan. Uh, I am I'm proud to say that you know Cleveland City Council uh, in collaboration with the administration is working really hard on rethinking what a community benefit is and the the great news is we have a lot of huge projects on the horizon where we get the chance to say to ourselves um, let's not think only about um, the the one-off uh, you know, contract here but what is the what is the longevity of this project the lakefront won't be done in a year, y'all. Won't be done in the first term. 
Um, it's, a, it's, a ten, it's a generational project. And so we should be asking ourselves questions about um, you know, what it looks like for this project to start and who is participating and how much different it is when it, when it ends. That should be our metric uh, because this place has to be different than it is today. Um, and so you know, while I, I can't be prescriptive about a single intervention, uh, I think it's important that we pull ourselves out of the transactional and be systemic and strategic um, and then be laser focused about what it is that we're trying to drive. Do either of you want to comment at all of where you're seeing this model? where you're seeing change in other communities of our size? And if not, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't have <laughs> yeah. the knowledge, yeah. yeah. No, I'm okay. afraid not. Okay, that's all right, we have another question, so. So our next, is, next question is a text question. Um, in light of our German friends being here today who have access to an amazing transit system, how critical is transit overhaul for us to get to the 15-minute city goal? Required. <laughs> It's required. Um, our city has for too long been inaccessible, um, divided by um, a river uh, that segregates us um, and that makes us feel, and, and in real ways, it makes it unable for people to get um, to the amenities that we're trying to drive folks to. It's also really important to just note that where matters, right? Um, where jobs and businesses are locating matters. So while this is a discussion about how we invest in transit, it's also a discussion about where we're asking businesses to locate, right? Because um, there is negative externalities um, to those green fields um, out in exurbia. Um, and so while we can spend a ton of time thinking about how we increase um, our roadways and our various modes of transportation, it's equally as important to start to think about the sites that we're putting into play in order to make it easier for people to get to their jobs now. I would add that this is an area of real uh, interest for us. Communities like Cleveland, but also small mid-sized cities across the country uh, through the uh, the bipartisan infrastructure plan have an incredible opportunity to attack the, the, the three C's that I mentioned earlier, leveraging those dollars to do something different. And I think we all have seen, um, or should have seen how, not just transportation, but to Bradford's point earlier, infrastructure more broadly, where are the lead pipes? Where are the, um, where the safe, stable, and affordable housing, and then where you locate the jobs to all of our points really does matter. It's not, these are not siloed, and they don't impact people in siloed ways, and so it's an area where we're going deeper as well because we've recognized that um, transportation planning cannot stay static to the question earlier. It cannot continue to be sort of a bureaucratic, um, well, this is the traffic count, this is what we do. It has much more implications, much far-reaching implications than that. Yeah. And building on that, coming back to our friend's question about diversifying the construction workforce, I think this is a place where governments can use this money from the federal governments to, to make some strong policy decisions about not just what do we want to build and where, but who do we want to support in that construction and how, whose business are we going to go to and that kind of thing. There's a lot of opportunity there. Do we, 
Okay, so we are wrapping up. I was going to say, I couldn't tell if we were, we were negotiating a little bit there. So uh, I, I, liked, I liked the perseverance of the person who wanted to ask the question. We'll have to get it another we'll time. It yes. So thank you, Bradford, Jesse, and James. Uh, today's forum is presented in partnership with the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the American Council on Germany, Burton Bell Car Development Corporation, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, Cleveland State University Levin College, Cuyahoga County Land Bank, the JAR Foundation, Greater Cleveland Partnership, Huntington, and Mansour Gavin LPA. Thank you for being here with us today. Normally we clap. Uh, this, this Friday, December 9th, Cleveland School CEO Eric Gordon will sit down with Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb for a conversation about leadership, their shared hopes for Cleveland's children, and the work ahead for the next leader to take the baton. Tickets are sold out for this forum, but you can view the live stream and learn about this forum at, uh, and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you again to our panelists once again, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Tanya Maness, and this forum is now adjourned. <laughs> Yay. Okay, let's take off your lapel. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.